Thank you, Pastor Burt. Pastor Burt is senior pastor at Harmony International Baptist Church, and they meet on our campus on Sunday afternoon. And Pastor Burt mentioned recently, hey, how about we combine services for Good Friday? And I thought, that's a great idea. And so um, thank you, Pastor Burt, for uh, reading from the Gospel of Mark uh, this evening. Good Friday was the darkest day in human history. Friday, Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, the day that Christ gave his life for the, for the world, it was a day of utmost betrayal. It was a day of complete denial, um, deep humiliation, um, excruciating loneliness, um, pain and sorrow. Ju- Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he brought in the chief priests and the elders of the people and they were carrying swords and clubs and they were coming to arrest him and Judas was going to betray him with a kiss, that was the, the sign of that this is the rabbi, this is the Messiah, this is the one that, that you've been searching for, waiting for, wanting to... Um, to try him and uh, put him on trial. As they were carrying all these different weapons, as they arrested Jesus, the gospel writer Matthew says that all the disciples left him and fled. You know, when Jesus needed his friends the most, they were nowhere to be found. Good Friday was a dark day. The disciples were paralyzed by fear. They were gripped by unbelief. Their minds were confused. Their hearts were disappointed. They were reeling with unbelievable pain and regret. You have to understand their pain. I mean, they've spent three years with Jesus. I mean, with their eyes, they saw the miracles. They saw the the dead raised to life. They saw people with life-threatening diseases come be healed. and, and, And the dead raised back to life, they... They, they saw a sack lunch, a little boy's sack lunch transformed to feed thousands of people, not just once but twice. With their ears, they, they heard the stories. They heard the parables, these, these earthly stories with spiritual meaning. They heard the teachings and the sermons. They, they, they were eyewitnesses to the dialogue between Jesus and the religious elite. They spent time with Jesus, three years, and now Jesus is dead. At this point, their hopes are dashed. Their dreams are completely shattered. Their beliefs are crushed. All hope is lost. The gospel writer Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. The gospel writer Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke his final words at 3 p.m., For six hours, Jesus endured the agony, the pain, the horror of the cross for you. Hebrews says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross? And who is is that you? It is you. He went to the cross for you. He endured the pain for you. As the song that we sang a moment ago, he turned a, a wretch into a treasure. That's the grace of God. And then at 3 p.m., we know from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. before the the Sabbath started, they removed Jesus' body and and they buried him in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. It was a borrowed tomb. Isaiah, tucked away in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy about this. I mean, 700 years before Jesus was ever born, 
the prophet Isaiah predicted not just his life, his death, but his burial and his resurrection. I mean, what, what happened next? They took his body, they buried his body, the tomb was sealed, Roman guards outside of the, um, the grave, the tomb, decay was setting in, hell partied, religious leaders plotted. I mean, it's, it's over. In the eyes of the disciples, everything was over until Sunday rolled around. As Jesus hung on the cross, the, the crowds derided him. They, they hurled insults at him. Uh, they hurled abuse at him. They said, um, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Prove that you're the son of God. Prove that you're the Messiah. Prove that you're God in, in human flesh. Come off the cross right now. The soldiers mocked him. They said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The religious leaders chimed in. They said, he saved others, and he cannot save himself. If you are the king of Israel, then come down from the cross, and we will believe. He trusts in God. Let, a, let, let his God deliver him. The, the, the criminals chimed in. So you had the crowds. You had the, the soldiers you had the religious leaders. You had the criminals. What, I, what I'd like to do this evening, since it's Good Friday, and it's a day for us to remember that Good Friday, the day of crucifixion, the day the King of glory gave his life for us, I want us to walk through the seven sayings of the cross. Here's point number one, a word of forgiveness. A word of forgiveness. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, Verse 23, chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. What's amazing about this is in, in the midst of the pain and the horror and the agony, Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people. He doesn't speak to the soldiers or the religious leaders or, or the criminals you know what he does? He prays for them. He's, he's praying for them. He's not trying to seek vengeance, try to even the score. And, and this reminds me that there is nothing that Jesus cannot forgive. If Jesus can forgive the soldiers who took a mallet and plunged the seven-inch nails through his hands and his feet, then surely Jesus can forgive you. If Jesus can forgive those who murdered him, who put him on the cross, then he could forgive you. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. Jesus can forgive you today. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross is, is the ultimate picture of love and forgiveness Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, while we were far away from him, while, while our past was riddled with sin and our lives were a mess, Jesus died for us. He came and he bridged the gap so that we can, we can experience his grace and his mercy and our sins can be washed away and we can be made right with God. Ephesians chapter 4, 
32 in chapter 5, verse 1 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When it says as God in Christ forgave you, I want you to put your name there. As God in Christ forgave your name. He forgave you. He forgave your past. He's forgiven you. He, he, he paid it all. And then the verse says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we've received this forgiveness from God. Christ chooses to forgive. He extends his forgiveness to us. And then we take that forgiveness and we need to extend forgiveness to one another. Now, now what's the motivation of our forgiveness? Because God in Christ forgave you. That's the perfect example. That's, that's the motivating factor. God is the model, and we're called to imitate him. And this is why Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And this is what I, I always say. We are never more like God than when we forgive. When you choose forgiveness, when you choose to release a hurt and a pain, you're never more like God because it was there on the cross that, that Jesus displayed perfect love and perfect mercy and perfect grace and perfect forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here's the second word on the cross. It's a word of promise. It's a word of promise. Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We know that Jesus had to carry his cross to Golgotha, Calvary's hill, the place of the skull. And we know that the cross beam was roughly 200 pounds of timber on his back. You have to understand, throughout the night, he was bounced back and forth between Annas' house and Caiaphas and, and Pilate. And he was beaten and bruised and spit upon and mocked and tortured, flogged, scourged, cat of nine tails. They, they, they ripped open his flesh. He was beaten, humiliated, mocked, clothes stripped off of him. And then they put the 200-pound timber of wood on his back. His back was lacerated. Most of the people that were flogged and scourged, they, they didn't survive. Jesus survived the beatings two times. He carried his crossbeam to Golgotha. We know that eventually he, he did receive a little bit of help. But as he gets to Golgotha, we know that it was there that he was crucified and there were robbers, criminals, two criminals, one on his left, one on his right. Jesus is in the center, which reminds me that Jesus is center stage. He's always center stage. It's always about him. It's always about his redemptive plan and what he is doing. He's bringing grace and forgiveness and mercy to a lost and dying world. Why would he, why would he be crucified with criminals so that the scripture would be fulfilled? There was a prophecy that he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, these weren't just like petty thieves. I mean, the, these were robbers. More than petty thieves, they, 
plundered and they stole from people. They were hardened criminals. They were thugs. They were rebels. Some say these criminals were guerrilla fighters. And, and one of the criminals said to Jesus, are you not the Christ? He kind of chimed in with the crowds and the religious leaders. People are, you know, jeering and sneering at Jesus and mocking him and throwing insults at him. And, and he just chimes in, right? He's being crucified. He has hours to live. And he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the Bible says that both were reviling Jesus on the cross. And then... One had a change of heart. And this other robber, he spoke up and he said, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man, but this man has done nothing wrong. He realized quickly and he told his friend, right, the other thief, we are guilty. This man, this man is innocent. Even the criminal knew it. This man, he knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And that's where a relationship with God starts. It begins with an acknowledgement that, that Jesus is perfect, that Jesus is sinless, that Jesus is God, that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And yet we are guilty. And we're broken. And we're in need of grace the thief on the cross, he, he cries out. Can you, can you just imagine? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, truly I say to you, today, today, not Sunday, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, Abraham's bosom, the presence of God, the intermediate state, before we're ushered into our eternal home, before we're ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what does is, what is this saying teach us? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, number one, it tells us that Jesus did not go to hell because he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There is this crazy theory out there that it's called the ransom theory that Jesus, when he died, he went to hell and he paid Satan a ransom. Couldn't be further from the truth. It teaches us that Jesus offers eternal life to everyone who believes. Salvation is, a matter, is not a matter of works. It is not a matter of your goodness, your morality, what you can do. Be better, do better, work harder. You can earn it. No. No, you cannot. This man could not boast in anything. He didn't have one single work to boast in. But you know what he was clinging to? You know what he was anchoring his life and his heart and his soul to? He was anchoring it to the ultimate work that would get him into heaven, and that is the death of Jesus. That's what he was doing. This man, midnight hour, a life riddled with sin and thievery and plundering and injustice and oppressing people, he sees Jesus and his life is wrecked forever. He has nothing to point to. 
He just simply cries out, Jesus, remember me, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus shows us that it's never too late to come to Christ. It's never too late to trust Jesus to be your savior. I don't care how many skeletons are in your closet. I don't care how dark your past is. I don't care what you've done. I know what Jesus has done. And Jesus paid it all in full on the cross. You are never beyond the reach of God's love. You're never beyond it. God created you in his image. He knows everything about you. He knows the path that you take, the words you speak, the thoughts you think. He knows the beginning to the end. He knows everything about you because he's God. And yet, in the midst of God knowing us, God still loves us. In the midst of the brokenness and how messed up we are, Jesus still loves us. God's grace will meet you right where you are. The thief on the cross, the grace of God met him where he was, just the way he was. He was broken. He was in need of Jesus, in need of grace. I want you to think of your past, all the sin, the junk, the failures, the struggles, the disappointments, the rebellion, the darkness, the sin you've, you've maybe never whispered to anyone. Paid in full. Jesus nailed it to the cross. God's grace can cover all of that. God's grace meets you where you're at today. See, God doesn't say, here's, here's the deal. Here's the gospel. You clean up your life, then you come to me. God doesn't say, X, Y, Z, then you come. God doesn't say, you know, you're dirty, get clean, turn over a new leaf, and then you can come to me. Then I'll let you into my presence. Then you're good enough. No. God says, come dirty. Come broken. I'll clean you. I'll make you whole. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'll reform you. I'll reshape you. I'll give you a new heart, a new life, a new beginning, eternal life. I'll give you a new identity, a new peace, a new love. See, when we come to when we come to Christ, when we encounter his grace, grace is just something that's freely gift. Salvation is, is not achieved, it is received. It's freely given, it's freely received. God's grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. So God says, come to me. Come sit at my table called grace and, and let's dine together. You can be a part of my family. Here's number three, a word of instruction. Here's the, the third word, a word of instruction. John 19, verses 25 to 27, says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, which is most likely Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, who's writing the Gospel of John, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the, to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is a tender scene between Jesus' mom, 
is Mother Mary, the chosen one, conceived by the Holy Spirit. She gave birth to the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. The God of heaven came to earth and went through a birth canal. And he was born in a little grotto, in a little cave. And, and they raised him right. They raised him as a good Jewish boy. They, they loved God. And they passed their love for God down to their son Jesus. He was fully God, fully man. Now, let's talk about John real quick. Tender scene between Mary and John. Now, who is John? Well, John was the first one to encounter Jesus. John was a disciple of John the Baptist. John was a disciple whom Jesus called out of a very lucrative fishing business. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, maybe they inherited a fishing business. We know that most likely they were partners with Peter and Andrew, so two pairs, two brothers, and they had this very lucrative fishing business. Well, we know that James and John, they had forceful personalities. On, on, on one occasion, they were like, you know, they were sent to make preparations, and they go into the town. It was a town, a village of Samaritans, and, and the Samaritans rejected them. They rejected Jesus. Why? Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They didn't live on the same block. There was prejudice, just kind of like today. There, there, was, there was animosity, racial tension. And so they were like, no, like, we don't want you here. And so James and John, they go back to Jesus, and John says, hey, Jesus, you want us to call fire from heaven and smoke these people? No, no, look it up. It's in the Bible. Do you, Jesus, do you want us to call fire from heaven to destroy these people? They, were, they had forceful personalities, volatile tempers. They were like... They were leaders. It's amazing. Even John was a part of the inner circle. So Jesus had 12 disciples. And then he had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And John, he was at the transfiguration. When, when Jesus removed the veil and they got to see a glimpse of his deity. And Moses was there. And Elijah was there. It was a mountaintop experience. They were on a mountain, but it was a mountaintop experience to see the glory of God shining on the face of Jesus, the Shekinah glory of God manifested on the mountain, to see the true identity of Jesus, that he was God. Fast forward. Now John is, he's nearby. It says he's nearby the cross. He's near the cross. And, and, and at this point, Jesus has gone through so much throughout the night. There's no way, there's no way his, his, even his own mother could recognize him. Beaten and scourged and, and the blood dripping down his face and his body. The crown of thorns being just smashed upon his forehead and it's the crown of his head. And Jesus said something very tender. He, he looked at his mom, 
And he said, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. We know that James and John, sons of thunder, forceful personalities. But then later, John becomes the apostle of love. He gives us the gospel of John. He gives us first, second, third John. And he gives us the book of Revelation. At the end of his life, after a decade of, of serving pastors and churches in Ephesus, he was exiled to Patmos, this island, to die because of the testimony of Jesus, because he was preaching the gospel. And, and he gave us life, but, but, but he gave us this scripture. So here's this guy, sons of thunder, and he becomes the apostle of love. And here's the big idea. I, I want to kind of connect the dots real quick. Jesus came to connect us. Jesus came to build a spiritual family. And through the cross, we are a spiritual family. Here's point number four, a word or a cry of desolation. Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced the horrors of the cross before ever going to the cross. It was late that evening, the disciples were we're sleeping, and Jesus is praying, and he's saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is he referring to? The cup is the wrath of God poured out against the sins of humanity. And every single one of us in this room, we fill that cup. We fill the cup with our own sins. And so Jesus drank the full cup of our sins. He was the sin bearer. He took upon our sins upon himself. He was punished for our sins. He was punished in our place. He experienced alienation and abandonment and despair. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That eternal, unbroken communion and union between the Father and the Son was momentarily severed. Older theologians, they say it's, it's as if the Father turned his back on the Son. In that moment, when Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath, this, the Bible says that he satisfied the just demands of God. He appeased the wrath of God. He took upon the fury of his father against sin, and he bore it in his body. In that moment, something legal, something spiritual, something eternal happened in that very moment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. And the key to this verse is for our sake. He traded places with us. He became our substitute. He appeased the wrath of God. He bore our sins on the cross. 
at the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and his love was poured out on us. It was the darkest time in history, the darkest moment in Jesus' life. He bore all our sins and the cross shows us how much God loves us. Here's the fifth saying of the cross. It's a word of anguish. A word of anguish. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We know that crucifixion was a, a death by asphyxiation. Literally, it, it was a death of d- depriving you of, of oxygen. It was also a death, a very long, slow death of dehydration. As Jesus cried out, I thirst, it shows his humanity. The thirst of a dying man proved that he was human. And why is this so important? I think two reasons, lots of reasons, but I'm going to give you two. Number one, it fulfills scripture. Number two, it shows us his humanity. See, here's what we do. We elevate his deity, but sometimes we minimize his humanity. Absolutely, we should always elevate his deity, but we should also elevate his humanity. Sometimes we want to just focus on him being God rather than the God-man. We want to focus on um, his God-like attributes rather than like he was 100% man. What does that mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Jesus experienced everything we experienced, we have experienced, except one thing. He was sinless. He was perfect. We're imperfect. He's perfect. We're unworthy. He's worthy. But for Jesus to be human, I mean, just, just think about it real quick. He was hungry. At times he was thirsty. At times Jesus was sad. He was happy. At times he was angry. An anger that was a righteous indignation anger. An anger that did not lead to sin. A holy anger. Have you ever thought that Jesus was lonely? Do you think on that Good Friday when all the disciples fled and they left him? Do you think he was lonely? Do you think because he's omniscient, he is God, he knew that Peter and John would follow him into the city of Jerusalem. Peter would have to stand outside the gate of Annas' house, the courtyard, but John, because he had connections and he knew the high priest, John would be able to be let in, do you think he felt lonely, marginalized, mistreated? He was labeled as being demon-possessed. People called him a, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So when you're labeled, he understands. When you're lonely, he understands. When you feel rejected, he gets it. He gets you because he's been there. He suffered. He experienced pain, physical pain. 
emotional pain. He was beaten and bruised, spit upon and scourged and flogged and crucified. Never forget Jesus was human. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest. So notice the negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable, so just make it positive, right? We have a high priest who is able, right? To sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, he's the high priest. We can have a relationship with God because he bridges the gap. Perfect life, perfect sacrifice, tempted in every way, no sin. And so the next verse, notice what it says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, as we're traveling, as we're, you know, the Bible says that we're exiles. As Christians, this is not our home. We're just traveling through. We're just, uh, we're, we're just so sojourners, right? We're just, we're just, we're on a trip. We're on a journey. And during this journey, we need God's mercy and we need his grace in time of need. Here's the sixth saying of the cross. It's a shout of victory. John 19, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and and he gave up his spirit. You know, crucifixion was generally a a painful, slow death by asphyxiation. But, But notice the gospel writer John tells us that that, that, that Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus had air in his lungs, and he, and he cried out with a, with a triumphant cry, it is finished. Literally, mission accomplished. When Jesus said, it is finished, that phrase in the Greek is one Greek word. And you know what it means? Complete. It was used back in the day when, when a painter painted a masterpiece and and he focused on every detail of the painting and then he did his last final stroke then he would say it is finished he would stand back and he would say it is complete if someone owed a lender a debt when the debt was paid off the lender would would stamp the note with the word paid in full. Jesus hung on the cross. And what did Jesus say? It is finished. It is complete. Stamp it. Final paintbrush for redemption. Colossians says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. It is finished. 
It is complete. It is final. You see, we owe God a huge debt. And this debt that we owe God is not perceived. It's reality. And the debt is sin, and we cannot pay it. But Jesus paid it on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins. And here's the beauty of the gospel. God accepts Jesus' payment on your behalf. When Jesus said it is finished, it is finished. There is a, a debt that we owe God. Our sin is the greatest debt that we are accruing. We don't receive what's coming ultimately until we die. And, and that's our spiritual debt towards God. All of our sin is debt that we owe God. So at the moment of death, your account is going to be settled. You can't settle the account on your own. You know, people think, well, you know, God will weigh the scales. You know, as long as the good scale outweighs the bad scale, you know, then, then I'm going to be good. But here's the deal. God doesn't judge based on scales. Just like God doesn't give salvation based on a curve. God judges us based on our relationship to his son, Jesus. Isaiah 64, verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Also in the book of Isaiah, it talks about our, our deeds are polluted. Our deeds are polluted. There, there's no good deed. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Like, do we want to go to the scales with that? I don't think so. The good news is that Jesus has paid your debt. He's paid your debt. How did he do that? He lived your life. He lived the life you could never live. Perfect. Moral record, perfect. He died the death. You could never die. A sacrificial, substitutionary atonement. He gave his life to you as a gift. And you can receive him by faith and be forgiven. Here's the last saying of the cross. A word of commitment. A word of commitment. Luke chapter 23 verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus cried out with a with a loud, triumphant cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Bible says that he bowed his head and he breathed his last and he yielded up his spirit to the Father. I want you to notice what Jesus said there. Jesus said, I commit my spirit. Here's the truth. Jesus voluntarily laid his life down for you. He said, I commit my spirit to you. Jesus knew the cup that was before him. He experienced the horrors of the cross hours before in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet he still went. He still went to Golgotha. He endured the six hours on the cross. The Gospel of John in chapter 10 John tells us this, for this reason the Father loves me. This is what Jesus says. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So Jesus is saying, I lay my life down and I'm going to take my life up. 
Good Friday, Easter, Resurrection Sunday morning. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Amen? He said, this charge I have received from my Father. No one took Jesus' life. He freely gave it. Willingly, voluntarily, he gave his life as a gift for you. He laid his life down for you. And God is calling you to give your life and to give your heart back to him. God is asking you to lay your life down for him because he laid his life down for you. Let's pray. As you're in an attitude of prayer, as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, this is a great opportunity for you to really reflect upon Good Friday. As Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The king is here. Lord, save us. And as he rode on a donkey fulfilling scripture, thousands of people were welcoming him, him into the city. And it says that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up and they were saying, who is this? And so tonight you have to ask yourself the question, who is this? Was Jesus just a good man? Was he a Jewish rabbi? Did he come just to kind of reform people's morality? Did he come to be a, a social revolutionary, to change society? Did he come as like a political warrior king like the Jews were expecting him to? He's so much more than that. Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God. And he came and he penetrated the darkness of our world. And he took upon flesh and he walked in our shoes, perfect in every way. And the Bible says that he has the authority to lay his life down. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? That's you. And that's me. But he also has authority to rise again. We're going to celebrate that Sunday morning. But I want you to really reflect upon who is Jesus. Do you know him? Have you trusted Christ to be your savior? Can you identify with a robber? I am so broken. I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. The Bible says, whoever calls... Upon the name of the Lord, whoever calls upon Jesus will be saved. If you cry out like the robber did, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, be my Savior. Be the Lord of my life. Come into my life and change me and save me and remember me when I take my last dying breath. 
Jesus, remember me. I want to be remembered. I want to be welcomed into your kingdom. Jesus can do that. He will do that right now. If you just simply, in the quietness of your own heart, you just simply say, God, I'm a sinner. And I need your grace. Forgive me. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you died on a cross for all my sin. I believe that you were buried and that you came back to life the third day, that you conquered the grave. Today, I make a firm commitment to follow you this day and for the rest of my life. I hail you as my king and my savior, my God. God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight as we reflect upon the death of your son, the darkest day in human history, Good Friday, over 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray for those that may not know you as their personal savior. God, may you just convict them and show them their deep need for you. May your grace just explode in their heart and their life. May they see your goodness and your beauty and your love. The cross is the greatest picture of love. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, speak to us tonight as we pause and ponder and reflect upon what Jesus has done for us, his life given for us so that we could be saved. God, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.